everybody. Uh, this is Joe Joukowsky. I'm here with Wenzel, and we're on the Feeding Curiosity podcast. Uh, today, I'm going to actually do a final project for a bio course that I'm in here at the University of Michigan, which uh, requires that I uh, do a podcast or make a web page or something of a topic that's tied into evolutionary biology. So I chose human attraction in part because I'm in the psychology dimension of biology, right? And attraction is interesting. And so I initially wrote a paper called Darwin After Dark that is acting as a framework for this that uh, will also be posted on Feeding Curiosity when this comes out. Sweet. So I'll open it up. You can follow along with this if you've read the paper. Kind of get, we'll probably get more in depth than I'll manage to do here. But this maybe will be more accessible. So the first thing to keep in mind with anything evolutionary is that every action uh, has a cost. That everything that you do uh, requires some amount of resources in order to do it. And that actually includes the act of choosing itself. Mm-hmm. So if I have to think through whether or not I want to do X or Y, there's a cost to that thinking. There's a resource loss in, that, in the attempt to do that. Right? So what that means is that can, what we've kind of like what we managed to do is to try to, to mitigate that problem of loss of resources in the choosing process itself is to habitualize, to make habits out of something. So if I do the same action every day, every day I make my bed, it'll eventually get to the point where I don't even have to think about whether or not I'm going to make my bed. I'm just going to make my bed. It's a habit now, right? Get up in the morning, make breakfast, whatever. I don't have to think through the number of these choices that I can make. In fact, there seems to be a limit on human decision-making processing power. There's some, you can make 10,000 choices a day. Yeah, I've heard of that. Start to, yeah. yeah, your ability to take make choices starts to deteriorate. So if we can make a bunch of those choices become habits, and you don't have to think about it as much, it frees you up. So, but if you keep doing that, so you keep having habits that happen for a long period of time, then the habits actually become something like instincts. Now, this is across generations, right? So you mm-hmm. can actually have instincts that were once habits that were once conscious choices. So you can think of an instinct something like an unconscious choice. One that you no longer have to think through at all. There's no thought involved in this process, or at least how we think of thought is not involved <laughs> in this process, really. Like conscious um, thought, right? I, I guess it would be the right. Like you don't have to consciously choose to be hungry, right? Yeah. So hunger is the is forcing you to go get food in some sense, and it's making the choice to get those resources because you need them. You don't have to think through whether or not you should go get these resources. You just now you're being kind of incentivized to just do so. One of those unconscious thoughts, right? This is unconscious instinct is a human attraction, right? This is why they say like attraction is kind of mysterious. Is that why the, like the love is blind nomenclature, that kind of thing? Well, kind of. Yeah. Right. So like if love is blind, it's it, what, what does that mean? Love is blind? You don't see it. You're, if you don't see something, it's not illuminated, enlightened, not evident to you. So you could say that if love is blind, then yes, then, then what we're talking about there in that context is unconscious. It's not apparent to you why it is that you're attracted to that individual. And the reason for that is because there's been a bunch of specific things that you're picking up on that are that you're unconsciously choosing that have become mm-hmm. have been so caught in this feedback loop in an evolutionary process that you no longer have to think about which person to choose exactly. What you have is a rough system that indicates which stimuli in the world 
are likely to be a good sexual partner or indicate a good sexual partner. Unconscious triggers basically like, oh, they did this thing and that sends something to your primal brain that says, oh, I like yeah. that. <laughs> and right. it just keeps doing exactly. <laughs> exactly. If there's some, some stimulus out there in the world that hits your monkey brain or lizard brain in just the right way and it goes, I know what that that represents. Now I'm going to, you're going to become attracted to that thing, but you don't even, it, you don't recognize what it is about that person that you're really attracted to. Mm-hmm. So what I'm going to lay out is try to make, we're going to try to make conscious those unconscious choices that are being made mm-hmm. and say mm-hmm. why they, why they have been so perpetuated across time in our species. So the general thing to keep in mind is we're going to do men and women and, and heterosexual attraction. I didn't get into homosexual attraction, though, just to give one point of contact. They found uh, that in gay men, there's, there's still this age dynamic across a male or straight men and gay men, which is that uh, generally you date down for men. We date younger, about like four years. That remains true for long-term dating in gay men, but not in promiscuous behavior. That's actually true for straight men, too, that if you're not, uh, if you're just looking for a hookup, then their age sort of doesn't matter anymore. Mm. or as much. So that is a commonality between gay and straight. Where they differ is the amount of promiscuity. So gay men are more likely to have more partners than straight men. Now, I think part of that is just if you've ever had any gay friends at all, one, that's not a surprise. (laughs) 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 You didn't need to do a study on that. You could have just asked somebody. Yeah, Uh, especially because they'll probably tell you too. Oh, yeah, like I had a corporal in the Marine Corps that was there. It was, he was gay, and he used to love to tell us about his exploits. And I (laughs) dare not repeat them public for your own sake, because my God, these stories. (laughs) But it's just not surprising. That guy just breaks all the taboos, military and gay. Like, wow. (laughs) Oh, yeah, and he used to, we had a, this is a total tangent, but we had a gunnery sergeant who was totally uncomfortable with it. And he used to intentionally try to tell as many just vulgar stories to this gunny as he possibly could. Just to <laughs> <laughs> well, it's he so definitely funny. belongs in the military for that one. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, the is a really good sense of humor. That's um, fantastic. So part of what I think that is, is that really women just regulate men's behavior. Half the reason why men don't straight men don't have as much sex as gay men is because there are no women who are regulating that men's behavior. Right. Like, yeah. Like, half the reason men aren't having sex is because of women, <laughs> which is, so you move women out of the equation and now all the game, they're like, Oh wait, we could just do what we want to do anyway. Sweet. Yeah. Isn't it something so, with the biological repercussions of it? Because if they don't have yeah. the chance of having a pregnancy, then it doesn't like they can just do like, woo. Yep. Yeah. And we'll get into that. Like there's just way more of a risk for women involved in sex than there is for men because a man can just leave. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I more, I have two more examples from the military for that one. One is I had a staff sergeant from New Orleans who was one of 40 children. He had 39 brothers and sisters from a dad who just hopped around New Orleans, I guess, and never paid child support and just, it didn't matter. You could just abandon them all, right? <laughs> you can do that, clearly, mm-hmm. as evident by that case. So I get it, Sandy Little. But you can do that. And those women are all stuck with those kids still. They can't just leave. So women a higher risk and that's part of why they're less likely to have or be as promiscuous as men. The other example about women regulating men's behavior for the military is that I told you this before, but you could tell which units in the military had women in them and mm-hmm. which didn't. Now this is the Marine Corps, so we're kind of all over the place anyway, but 
or at least uniquely uh, brazen might be the word. Yeah, the, there's something hard charging about the Marines. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's in your face. So I could tell which units were by the how well behaved the men were in the unit. You could tell which ones had women in it. So like the guy, the units that didn't have any women were maniacs. They're all crazy people. <laughs> and they would act ridiculous and they'd be meaner, kind of more in your face and just whatever. But the men that were in units with women were much more put together, mm-hmm. more polite, all that. So it was interesting just to see that dynamic. An anecdote, but it is. So the, the general difference between men and women in this case, or if we're, talk, we're back to heterosexual behavior, is that men control for it's men are interested in looks, physicality. Women are interested more in uh, resources, re- potential resource acquisition, and personality, which is not a huge shocker. Is that you can conceptualize that as something like men are concerned with the physical health of the species, and women are concerned with something like the psychological, cultural health of the species. So they select those individual things to balance each other out. Two parts of the whole. (laughs) Right. Right. They're, they're literally compensating for each other's weaknesses. Wow. That never, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. It's so cool. So we'll start with men to women. Mm -hmm. So we need to understand what reproductive value means. So it's RV generally, I'll probably call it RV throughout the conversation. Uh, It's generally age based likelihood of reproductive success. So that means basically how likely are you in this time to be able to have kids, right? Mm-hmm. So that will pop up throughout this conversation. So, but one of the one of the signals that men look for that they find attractive in women, right? so attraction is something like the presence of, and yeah, like the presence of a sexual signal, something that, that suggests something about the sexuality of the individual, mm-hmm. like suggests reproductive reproductivity in some sense. Yeah, so I will. A couple of the things that I'll bring up will specifically have to do with the ability to reproduce. Okay, got it. The first one is sexual dimorphism, which is basically how much do you look like your specific sex, mm. generally. So men looking like men and women looking like women, and those two things being sort of separate, are is what sexual dimorphism dimorphism is. It's you look kind of one way or the other. Yeah. Now there's ambiguity, so you can have women that kind of look masculine. And men are less attracted to that in general. They like women that look feminine. Now you might ask, what does feminine look like? Well, you can figure that out. So you just (laughs) take a huge pool of women and you say, which physical features are most common amongst this thing? And maybe it's 60% of all women have uh, slender cheekbones. And they say, okay, and that 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 is not common in men. So 60% of men don't have slender cheekbones, right? That indicates something that we call feminine feature. Got it. So it's um, got double criteria, you know, found commonly in women and also is uncommon in men. Right. Right. Generally. So those features are what men tend to look for, including, uh, I said, slender cheekbones specifically because that was one of those things. And what's interesting, the question is why. So why do men find that more attractive? Like, why should a woman look more feminine? Well, one of the things is, oh, and fuller lips. That was the other one. Fuller lips and slitter cheekbones. Why is it that men find that more attractive? Well, it, it turns out that during, there's a certain age window for women where they're more likely or like most likely to be able to be pregnant. 
those specific features are something like more salient during that time period. Mm-hmm. So they're more, those are more full and they, they have more, the, the cheekbones appear more slender during that time period. So the men that were attracted to those feminine features were more likely to be able to reproduce because the women that had those features were fertile during that time. So it, then it becomes a, a, a feedback loop, right? Mm-hmm. If kids that now have those features and you perpetuate the men that are attracted to those features and just spreads and it continues to go. And also interestingly enough, it has to do, it seems to have to do with health. Uh, so in one study, it was uh, masculine features in women were actually positively, positively correlated re- with respiratory disease. So it could also be a mitigation for, it could be like something like disease control mm-hmm. to not just as they're attractive to the feminine features, but a lack of attraction to the masculine features. The lack of attraction helps control for potential disease, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Yeah, that's now, interesting. this is all unconscious to the people involved. Yeah. Definitely. So that's interesting, and that talks about, that's again, that talks about RV, right? Some reproductive value again, because those people, the women that had those features were more likely to reproduce, so they have higher reproductive value. So the next, the next thing is uh, waist-to-hip ratio. Mm-hmm. So that's cross-cultural. Um, they even did it with women in small groups in the Amazon that had no exposure, like secluded groups, they had no exposure to Western beauty standards. So you couldn't blame this on something like culture because across all these different cultures, it still can, maintains. And that seems to be the result of fecundity or fertility, that if you have wide hips, more likely to be able to give birth. But if you have slim waist, it suggests something like physical health generally. So healthy plus able to reproduce successfully. And there's another, there's one study where they looked at where women with large breasts and small waist-hip ratio were found to be more fertile, and that was uh, measured with, like, progesterone and some other stuff. So there's physical evidence to suggest that, too, which is really cool. Hmm. Yeah. That's another reproductive value thing, right? Wide hips means likely to re- be able to reproduce successfully. And then perhaps my favorite study <laughs> in this entire, this this whole thing, and maybe with my favorite that I've ever heard, it's so great, <laughs> it has to do with exotic dancers. Of course, Joe. Of course. (laughs) It's so funny. I love that they did this. Okay. but (laughs) So there's a society of estrus too, which is in most mammals, it's really common amongst mammals and in primates is estrus or heat being in heat. So there's Mm -hmm. periods of time where the female is more, you know, yeah, right. Kind of like a cat, right? (laughs) It's where it's like, they are more interested in having sex, send out signals saying, like suggesting that they said that it's the kind of make the, the, Prevailing theory has been that it was lost or hidden mm-hmm. throughout human evolution because there isn't an obvious period of time where that really happens with us. Yeah. But this is where the study comes in. So this is, ended up being evidence of the contrary. So what they, these researchers did is they took, let's see, what are the numbers? Because this is great. Uh, they went to, they had 18 exotic dancers over the course of 60 days. 296 shifts, shifts and 5,300 laugh dances. They recorded the tips and they also, that these women got, and then they also recorded their ovulatory cycle. What they found is that there's a period of time where they're most fertile right before uh, ovulation, where these women continuously got higher tips. So the more fertile the woman was, the more likely they were to get paid. That's interesting. Right. That is interesting. Because it's not 
known or it's like pheromones or something, you know, if you're thinking about lizards or something, <laughs> this is something, you're right. do- something you're doing that's invisible that is somehow making it easier for you to get paid. Yep. And so what they found is, so one, that happens. And the evidence that they uh, talk about also in that paper is that women during that point in their, that's their cycle are found to be more attractive to males via their scent. Uh, they have greater facial attractiveness, increased soft tissue body symmetry, decreased waist to hip ratio, and higher verbal creativity and fluency during that time period. So it's like all these signals come at once and go, bang, I'm fertile, have sex with me. Like that's the signal that's being sent. Not, it says nothing about the conscious uh, thoughts of the woman. Uh, she might not want that, right? Since we're conscious agents, we can play against her biology. But I think that as a result of that, the men end up tipping more not really consciously aware that they're doing it. It's almost like they're receiving all these signals that suggest this. And one of the means for them to get to answer that signal, to, to respond to it, is to tip more. So there seems to be also this element. There, there might be an estrus or heat period that also occurs hmm. in human women, which is so fascinating. Well, like, what that reminds me or thinks, makes me think of is that we can control or women can control, you know, the shapes of their body, right? Like what you're saying, you know, by things we wear because of technology and quotation marks, you know, heels or dresses or whatever. Mm-hmm. They, they accentuate the features of the physical body that other animals are have used biology to already do. I'm thinking like the peacocks or different birds that do displays. Yeah. We just wind up doing that in other ways. Or even red lipstick. I think we've talked about that before too. Like blush. It, like the reason it's called blush yeah. is it's, it's supposed to do exactly that. Yeah. <laughs> I can totally. Okay. So I can follow up on that. So, we have these biological markers like I'm laying out, and these are something like signals for fertility. There's other signals that can happen that we can actually hijack to make somebody more attractive, right? Because our our dumb monkey brains just signal and they go, oh, that's, that's sexual readiness or whatever. That's mm-hmm. attractive, okay? But we can, because we can mimic that signal without having the actual underlying biological condition, we can hijack the system and present attractiveness that would otherwise not be there. One of those things is blush, so the type of makeup, right? So you put blush on. Why does blush look good? Well, what do, what do we even mean by look good? Look attractive? Well, attractive to what? What do we mean? What's the end goal of attractive? It's sexual attractive. Looking good is looking sexually attractive for sex, for the purpose of sex, right? Like by definition, that's what that means. Mm-hmm. So we put on blush to look good. Why does blush look good? Why is blush sexually attractive? Well, when somebody is sexually aroused, they naturally blush. That blood rushes their face and, and shows blush, right? So what was the biological signal was, here is someone who is sexually aroused with whom I could potentially have sex with, and that's why they're attractive. But now we can remove the being sexually aroused element and just have the end product, which is blushing, and put that on, and that hijacks our brain system and makes us think that they're attractive. So that's super cool. We do that all the time. Yeah, that seems to be, I've heard that that's what high heels do too, because it accentuates legs and it makes it so that their uh, posture is in lordosis, which is basically curving of the lower back and it's making sexual position essentially. Yeah. We can have a link to the show yeah, notes right. for that one. This paper will have everything cited on the bottom. Sweet. So people can read it. We can switch directions now and go to uh, women and men or women being attracted to men. So this is a little more difficult because it's personality based, right? So there's not there's not these specific sexual signals as much in women as there are these obvious ones in men, right? Because uh, we can just refer to the body, obviously that's what men are looking at, 
and attempt this concrete thing. Personality is a little bit more fluid, and and that's well harder to pin down exactly. Yeah, so it's just I'll try to do my best to, to lay it out. But I'll start with one specific physical uh, thing that women seem to look for that uh, shows that one these are not clear dividing lines. Men just are interested in physicality, and women are just interested in personality or resource acquisition. Like this, it's a gradation, and these probably occur to some degree in both sides and all this. So, in women, they found that waist to shoulder ratio predicted a desire for a one time sexual partner, but personality also played a role. So, it's like how wide are your shoulders compared to your waist? That's so wild. Right? <laughs> Bodybuilding are immediately wow, that's ironic. <laughs> Yeah, right. That's the idea. It's in, in bodybuilding, in some sense, they're trying to make the most attractive body, right? So what we mean, again, by attractive is sexually attractive. The things that the, the criteria for that are something like unconscious sexual markers. Yeah. And that shoulder to waist ratio is one of them. They also found in the same study that I think it was personality, intelligence, career choice were, were things that women targeted in men. And more, and more so than men. Mm. So they, right. So they're hitting on a whole bunch of different things. And I think that a lot of that has to do with a career choice, intelligence, personality. I would almost put hmm, personality overlaps with a couple things, but I would say that one is it's, it's resource acquisition and maintenance because while she's pregnant, she can't be running around traditionally. Couldn't be running around. Even traditionally, doesn't really nail it. It's more like in our evolutionary past. Yes. So even deeper than, I don't want to say tradition because that implies culture. So deeper than that, like when we were just primates, right, before humans. If the woman was pregnant, given how long human pregnancy is, then acquiring resources during that time and when the child has been born and is super dependent would be difficult. So the male had to be the one acquiring those resources in order for her and her child to survive. So looking for men who are capable of doing that was positively beneficial. And so personality overlaps in that because there are dimensions of personality, uh, like industriousness, which is a a facet of uh, conscientiousness, which conscientiousness, yeah, I think it's conscientiousness. Here we go. Study of 20,000 couples, agreeableness and conscientiousness were found to be predictors of marriage satisfaction. Conscientiousness includes industriousness, which is like willingness to work in some yeah. sense. We're actually something more like a, a feeling of guilt if you're not working. And so the more you work, the more resources you acquire, the more likely it is that you'll be able to give those resources to the baby and child when they're most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So that's why they're selected for. And this is the big five for people who are not aware. Yeah, big five personality. Yeah. It's kind of like the standard, most tried and true model of personality that personality psychologists use. So that has to do with resource acquisition to a degree. The agreeableness has a lot to do with the cooperation between people. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that that would have to do with marital satisfaction, right? Because if you're just stubborn all the time, then... <laughs> and they also found... What else? But then there was intelligence and career choice. So both of those have to do with... I mean, intelligence is a lot of helpful things that it helps with, mm-hmm. but resource acquisition is amongst them. Yeah, it sounds like to me that it's almost like women, biologically speaking are selecting for a partner who's going to not only be able to provide for the children, like it's the assumption that children will be happening. And then, and then it's also that does that person have the ability to provide for that children or those children? And then 
will they be passing on the best genes to those children? Yeah. That, yeah at least that's what I would sum it up to. And I would say that the men generally tend to be more focused on the passing on of specific physical genes where the women are uh, looking at temperamental genes. Yeah, like personality like traits and how you deal with yeah, situations. Yeah, personality is heritable, right? It's like mm-hmm. four or something, point four, which means that there's some... 40% of your personality you can attribute to genetics. Mm-hmm. So clearly there's leeway here. But uh, out the box, you're, you have a preset. <laughs> yeah. And that's just obvious. Like I could just go right back to the, to the food and water. Like example, the fact that you don't have to think about whether or not you should be going and getting food now mm-hmm. suggests that you come preset with a desire for food. Right. So, but that includes certain sexual, I guess, preferences are really the white, the right word since it already has a, a meaning outside of this. But desire for certain traits is mm. part of what you come prepackaged with. What else? Personality trait agreeableness is also predicted. Desire for dating and long-term relationships in both men and women, but greater effect in women. So. Again, so there's also this kind of difference in, uh, but it had in that same paper it had less to do with uh, remote agreeableness had less of a predictive ability or ability to predict one-time sexual partners. So mm. when women are looking for um, a, a, a just a one a fling, right, yeah. a one-time sexual partner, then their personality doesn't matter much because, especially the agreeableness, because you don't need them to cooperate with while raising this child. It doesn't matter. Because it's happening. <laughs> You're not going to stick with it. You're raising a kid with this guy, so who cares? Yeah. Right? It's in, the, it's in the long term that it starts to really appear. So with women, the big things are physically, that weight to shoulder ratio. Then there's general resource acquisition stuff, So, but which includes personality, under which is agreeableness and conscientiousness. And then all those things kind of work together to act as the template for women's attraction to men. Now, I should say, because I can already see this criticism coming, <laughs> is that you're going to have the odd person that's going to hear this. And they're going to say, well, I'm a man or I'm a woman. And I care more about this thing that you said that women care about or men care about. Right. Right. Saying, I care about this thing that you said that the other people care about. Whatever I'm not, that's what they care about. I care about that. Okay, these are these are generals. They're general generalisms, generalities. Maybe generality, probably something. You can think of it. It's like the average, the typical male follows the male template that I'm laying out. Yeah. The typical female follows the typical follows this female template that I'm laying out. Yeah. But there's a huge amount of overlap, right? It's like. It's a two-hilled. It's a two-hilled uh, median, I guess. Bell curve. Yeah, yeah it's like it's as if you could picture two bell curves, right? Yeah, that are next to each other, and then like sixty percent of it overlaps. Yeah, right, so you have this huge section in the middle where it's common amongst men and women. And yeah, right, exactly. So you just got to think of it as a general template. There's a cultural element because we talk mostly biology here. There's this cultural element there. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, certain things that people are attracted to you would you would never consider to be biological exactly. I mean, maybe 
contained within a biology yeah. or influenced by biology, but not exactly. Like you would say that, let's say, how do I say this? Let's say somebody has a fetish. Right. This is an atypical sexual signal that makes them, that they're really attracted to. For some reason, this thing just clicks for them, right? Well, you wouldn't say that they that the biology created that fetish, right? Yeah. Because maybe the conditions for that fetish just didn't exist in the past, right? Maybe it's, I don't know, maybe you have a thing for lamps. Maybe every time you, it's like, it's like the Christmas story, right? That light lamp. <laughs> but imagine a normal lamp. So it doesn't even look like a light. It's a lamp. And for some reason, I don't know, when you're a kid, like something happened and there's a lamp and it works for you. I don't know. Well, lamps didn't exist in our evolutionary history. Yeah. So there's no reason whatsoever why you'd ever think of that lamp would be that way it would be that trigger right it's some yeah. imprinting from experience that happens so there's definitely influence from the culture and there's also the conscious element right so it's like just because we have a biology doesn't necessarily mean that it determines everything that we do yeah. because we can actually reflect on what we're doing and so like part of what making this conscious a lot of people do is maybe before they're like oh i was totally I was totally looking for women with wider hips or whatever. And maybe that was actually a problem. And that the, these people, this woman that you really get along with and it doesn't have that. And then you're like unconsciously not when you date her because of that or something. Now that you're conscious of it, you can in some sense overcome it. You make the conscious choice to ignore or do something else. Yeah. You can pull the subconscious to the conscious level of reflection so that you can make is some sort of agency rather than just yeah. being pulled along by whatever, whatever this unconscious biological strings happen to be. Yeah. They have you wired up, which is part of why I think that becoming more conscious of things so important mm-hmm. is like, imagine that somebody's somebody has stolen your credit card information. You don't know it, but they're spending all your money. Now, if you're ignorant to the fact, if you're unconscious of the fact that somebody has your credit card and they're taking all your money, you are powerless to do anything about it. Like they'll just keep doing it. Assuming the bank doesn't get involved in all that. But the moment you know, the moment that you've made that conscious, now you can act on it. So part of what's interesting about learning about these things is that we may have maladaptive sexual attractions or ten biologically instantiated tendencies. Yeah. And once you're conscious of them, maybe we can do something about that. Just some, something to chew on. Yeah, I think that's a really good note to close on just because, you know, just because it is biological, because like you're kind of touched on where people are going to have objections. Just because it is biological doesn't mean that we can't be active agents in those things. I mean, we're still animals yeah. at the end of the day, but we are conscious of our actions more so than any other animal on the planet. So, yeah. And it's not even like necessarily it. I don't want to suggest either that it's bad that we have these attractions. Correct, yeah. I mean, clearly, there's reasons why they exist. And, it, you know, like why, why, it's some of them like, why would you want to get rid of it or whatever, right? It's like, who cares? Just enjoy what you enjoy, I suppose. But, but that's all I got. So Sweet. I hope that that was a nice, general layout for people to understand. Hopefully, I got something out of it or enjoyed a little bit about human biology, evolution, and human attraction. Cool. Sweet deal. I want to take a quick second and talk about how you can support our show. 
I believe this is the most honest way that I can connect with you, the listener, and put it in front of everyone. You can support our show for as little as 99 cents a month. We release four podcasts a month, all at an average length of about an hour. That means you are supporting us at just 25 cents an hour. That's that's cheaper than the dollar menu. I think it's safe to say that we provide more value than that. And if you learn anything from our content, please consider becoming a supporter today with the link in the description of any episode or on the website at feedingcuriosity.net. And with that, thanks for listening and please enjoy the show. You just listened to an episode of Feeding Curiosity. Thank you all for listening and tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a like, subscribe, go check out the website over at feedingcuriosity.net and all the other things that we're doing there. And once again, thank you all for tuning in and we will see you in the next episode.